Hello, and welcome to episode 112 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is December 28th. Wow, this year has just flown by. I'm going to be honest, I am kind of ready for a fresh year. (laughs) There's been some really good things about this year, and I would never wish my time away. But at the same time, there's just some years you're kind of like, you know, January 1st, yay, fresh year, different year. So that's where we are. I'm going to start out telling you a couple of tales of bad beekeeping on my part. Luckily, they were able to be salvaged, I hope. But if you uh, happen to do anything that wasn't too bright this year in your bee yard, you're going to feel in good company. And then I'm going to talk to you about, you know, I thought about putting this as a, a Patreon bonus. And let me stop and say that the reason you are not going to hear any commercials in this whole podcast is because of the patrons. Patrons support this podcast and keep it commercial free. So thank you to each and every patron. Plus it just, it really touches my heart. It touches my heart that all of you are supporting the work and keeping the lights on. I just appreciate you so much. And thank you. You have been actually a gift in 2023 despite all the rest, or maybe especially because all the rest. And I thank every single patron for your support. So let me tell you about some bad beekeeping I've been doing. (laughs) These were actually errors that happened earlier in the year, and luckily I caught them. One was, this is the first year I have ever caught a swarm. I I mean, I'm not talking about catch a swarm out of a tree, but in a swarm trap. A wonderful listener a couple years back made me the most beautiful swarm trap you've ever seen. It's just beautiful. It says Five Apple Farm on the front. I will always be so appreciative for this. And it was just such a beautiful work of art that frankly, I didn't put it out in the weather for a long time. But then I thought, that's what swarm traps are for. And so on a lark this past summer, I put it out on the deck, on a side deck that's not used very much. It's probably about uh, maybe 10 feet at the, well, no, not even 10 feet. It's probably eight foot off the ground. And I just sat it in the corner of the deck and pointed the entrance out between the uh, pickets. Now, if um, if I were a normal person, it might not be a great idea to have a swarm trap on the deck, but... I'm a beekeeper. And so anybody who visits my house is well aware there could be hives in odd places. And so this one sat on the deck. There was this beautiful swarm. I had a person over helping me with some farm work and I saw the swarm come out and I knew which, I knew which hive it was. And I was like, oh, well, there they go. But I really wanted to see this young, I wanted to let this young person see us warm and how wonderful all that is. So I walked her out there and said, look, you know, they're coming out. We watched them go out and I could not see where they landed. They went somewhere up in the forest and I was like, oh, well. Then the next day I thought, wait a minute, Would it not be cool if they had got in this warm trap on the deck? So I went over and checked it and there they were, which was just, that was just thrilling. This is actually a Caucasian queen that I got from New River Queens uh, from West Virginia. And I really, really like her. And so I was pretty delighted that she moved into my swarm trap. Well, then life got crazy. 
and they were very busy, stayed in their swarm trap. And then after it's nice and cold, and when I was out insulating the yard for some bitter cold weather we had, I got in, I was done. You know, I'd been freezing to death out there. I got in, I'm all cozy. And I was like, oh my gosh, there is a swarm trap on the porch. And it's, it's made out of thin lumber because you're not, you're not supposed to leave a colony in a swarm trap over the winter. It's a bad idea. But I was like, crap. So I went out and got my insulation supplies and I, in the freezing cold and wind, which is, seems to be the time when I get inspired to do fancy insulation on little bitty hives. So I went out there and I cut pieces to fit and insulated it really well, insulated the top really heavy. Also, thank goodness, I was able to MacGyver and put a patty on top because the hive is not, it's a swarm trap, so it's not standard size and it's not really meant to have a box on top of it, but using a box cutter and some insulation and some Reflectix, you can build mostly anything. So I built them this, uh, basically a feeder on top in the sense that it's just an open part of the circle. The rest is insulation, which they will chew on during the winter, but that's okay. So it's the circle, and that way I could put winter patty in that little hole. And so that way they had some food, which I'm going to have to really stay on top of because that is going to be on my little hives Now, the big ones are heavy. I didn't harvest much honey this year, so they're rock heavy. But the little ones, the splits, and especially the late summer splits that I did and then didn't pay great attention to, they do not have enough um, weight to get through the winter. So they're going to be winter patty dependent, and I'll have to be taking care of them. That will be the, the biggest risk to losing these young, small colonies which I love to overwinter, if I can, a late summer small baby colony because, man, they come out in spring rip-roaring. So anyway, yeah, so there was the hive I've completely, the colony that I completely forgot was on the porch, and I had to do a late-night insulation session with them, did that then. All, you know, the bee yard was all set up. I felt pretty good about everything. I'd checked weight on the little baby hives. I'd put winter patties on there. It was all looking good. And then at some visit to the bee yard, I look over and one of my favorite, favorite colonies, there is a friggin' queen excluder still on there. Oh my God. It's the plastic kind. So it's uh, it's brown plastic, so it just didn't show. And I don't use a lot of queen excluders. Now and then, if somebody's just got bukus of honey, I will pop a queen excluder under that top box uh, just because that makes it so easy to just take that top box off and not worry about queen or brood being in there for honey. And so I had done that. And then somewhere along in the fall, I had reconsidered and thought, you know, I'm just going to leave that honey for them forgetting that there was a queen excluder. So how will a forgotten queen excluder kill your colony? It's when they all start to move up in the winter as they eat their way upward in the hive, they will get to that queen excluder. The workers go through no problem, but guess who can't go through? That would be the queen. And so as it gets colder and they move up, they eventually leave her to freeze to death down below. And I was so upset because this is one of my favorite queens and it was way too cold to be messing with bees. So oh, I had some texts back and forth with some beekeeper friends about, okay, I got to have courage because I just got to go out there and do this thing because it's, it's 
the it's the only it's not a good idea it's a terrible idea to go do this in the cold but it's the only option i have so i picked the warmest day i had at that time and it was maybe in the low 50s but there there were some bees moving around quickly taking cleansing flights and everything so i i thought okay what if i take a piece of wire and do the thing like Sam Comfort uses between the comfort hives where essentially it's kind of like a piano wire and you pull it through the between two boxes and it slices off any burr comb and everything and I thought maybe I could do that so but I didn't have any piano wire lying around and I thought well you know dental floss is pretty tough so I go out there this is I, I I'll try anything I go out there and I try to take this piece of dental floss, a giant piece, and run it between the boxes. But the wood on the boxes just immediately frayed the dental floss and it, uh, it didn't work. If I'd had a piece of wire, my, um, the thing I would have loved to have been able to have done is just take that wire and very slowly run it under the queen excluder and then very slowly run it over the queen excluder. That way everything would be disconnected and I could just lift off that top box, yank that queen excluder off there, put the top box back on and call it good and a close call. So that wasn't to happen. But sometimes when it's cold, the boxes, uh, the propolis is kind of brittle. So even though I hated to break that seal, had no choice. So broke the seal, um, lifted up that top box and took out the queen excluder. They were just under the queen excluder. So that was the last possible minute to save that colony. And um, gosh, that was a close call. And that would have been just bad beekeeping to that would have killed that colony. It happens. Um, <laughs> it happens. Believe me, I've done weird things and kill colonies. And then what I just try to do and I would encourage you to do this is just truly learn from your mistakes. You know, don't make excuses about why it happened. If you know that it was bad beekeeping, it's okay. It must, you know, before you're really good at something, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And even after you're really good at something, you know, life can get your brain kerfluffled and you mess up on things. And that's just part of being human. But it is also, it's a normal part of beekeeping practice to occasionally just mess up. But that was a close call. So those were my two things. I hope I don't discover any more going forward into the winter. It has been very extremely warm late into the fall. The bees were out every day, which means they're just out flying around, burning up honey, and there's nothing for them to find out there. But they don't stop. They just keep looking and looking and looking. So they used up so much weight getting through the fall. And even the ones that I thought, oh man, they're, they're rock heavy. I'm startled at how much lighter they are. So again, staying on, making sure I'm prepared. I mean, I'm glad I got the big bucket now of the, the winter patty because there's a lot of the little hives that are, that are completely dependent already. We have passed the solstice, which means that in these tiny, tiny increments, the days are getting longer. I love it when that happens. I mean, it's a, it's a long slog before you can tell that they're getting longer. But, you know, I swear the first week after solstice, I'm like, hey, the day seems longer to me. <laughs> but 
So what will very shortly happen in our hive, particularly in kind of garden zone six, six, seven, where we are, the cold part of uh, six, seven, the cold part of seven. Now the numbers have changed, but I don't know. I, I feel like with planting, you know, you, you need to, cause they just changed all the garden zones because everything is so much warmer. But frankly, I think that it's completely possible that it will momentarily snap back to the original coldness of the zone, but mostly it's going to be a zone warmer. So basically what happens is you need plants that are comfortable in that full range of, uh, of zones. But anyway, what will be happening very shortly for us here in the mountains of Western North Carolina is inside that hive, that colony will gather around the queen. They will up the temperature and she will start a tiny patch of a brood. She will start 2024 bees. It will be happening. And so when they have to up the temperature, then they start using their reserves even quicker. And starvation is just a sick thing to realize that you, you let a colony starve. So keep an eye on the weight. If you have any doubt, put some form of emergency feeding on top, whether that's mountain camp, sugar bricks, or the winter patties, which I am very fond of, because not only are they gooey, they seem to be able to uh, really be taken down by the bees well, but also they have a tiny amount of protein. And just in the years I've used them, there's, there's no promotion here, but in the years I've used them, uh, both both of the brands, I've used the, uh, the Man Lake um, stuff, which is, I, I buy because you can get it in the bulk buckets. I actually prefer the AP23 um, winter patties, but I can't get them in bulk and they're, and I can't get free shipping on them. So I end up having to get the other kind. But anyway, I'm a big believer in those and it's a good feeling to just, you know, have, I mean, heck, you know, just to have a, a stash of those for that terrible moment where you're out there and you lift a hive and you nearly throw it off the stand because they've eaten through all their honey. And again, as they, within, you know, the next month, they will very start in a tiny way to cr- produce brood. And then the closer to spring it gets, the more dangerous it gets for them because they are having to keep a larger area warm. That's actually a, a part where insulation is probably more important on a full-size hive than through the winter is in the early spring because it helps them to keep the brood nest warm while taking a, the, the minimal toll on the cluster that, that they can have. So keep an eye on, on the weights and food. So today I wanted to talk about some topics. I, I sat down the other day and I wrote out some topics because I was thinking, is there something that I'm doing with my beekeeping that is helping the bees to succeed, to help me feel successful? And by successful, I mean having live bees every year having either good survival or enough survival to get through the winter and then start afresh in the spring. Since 2010, knock on wood, I have been getting my bees through the winter and have had an unbroken sequence of my bees in my yard and have not had to go out and buy replacement packages or bees. And for me, this is every once once you start achieving that survival 
then it's kind of like a, I don't know, it's kind of like a, a the chain of, of something good you're doing and you, you don't want to ever go down to zero again, partially, because I feel very happy with the genetics I have in my yard. And um, even though I'm constantly tweaking them, because they're constantly getting watered down with package bees in the neighborhood, but I feel happy with that. I do not want to lose the genetics that I have acquired. And so that feels successful to me. Live bees that have come out um, in general, extremely healthy bees, productive bees that produce lots of other bees and mostly some honey most every year. And so I started thinking, okay, what what are the factors that I believe have contributed to that success? Because it's really hard to do this without chemicals. There are There are just not that many beekeepers who can say, yeah, since 2010, I've been raising bees, have not gone down to zero and have not used any chemical whatsoever in the management of my hives. So in no particular order, these are the things that I wrote down. Now quickly, you will notice some of these I'm not in control of. It's just a happenstance. And then others I am in control of. And those are the ones that I like to focus on. So one of the things that's not really in my control is um, I live in a very rural area. It is not agricultural. It's mostly forest. And so the bees are not, they don't have the stress of agricultural chemicals. And also they don't have the stress of, you know, a crop being out there, lots of nectar or whatever, and then suddenly it's gone and then they don't, all that. Although, unfortunately... Oh, really, unfortunately, in the little township that I'm in, um, there is a monstrous, god-awful clear-cut. Oh, Jesus, it is it's it is painful to the heart to, to drive through. And um, <laughs> my neighbors and I talk about we just hate to even go that way because it's like driving through a moonscape desolation where there was a beautiful mature forest. It had to be at least 7,500 years old. Oh, geez, it was... Uh, what a loss. But anyway, uh, it was full of tulip poplars and that's one of my main nectar flows and that's all gone now. Um, in, in, in hundreds, it's a hundreds of acres clear cut. I, oh, I just, I I just can't wrap around why someone would, (laughs) I can't wrap around why you would need money so bad that you would do that. You would do that to a mountain. But anyway, God have mercy on their soul, but the impact for the beekeepers in this end of the valley, is that we have a tremendous less forage. Now, in the next few years, we'll probably have actually a lot of bramble forage, which is okay, all right, great. I would still rather rather have had the forest, as would all those songbirds that are going to return in the spring and go, hey, what happened to our, what happened to our home? (sighs) Anyway, so um, the upside is that it is uh, pretty low density, uh, in terms of bees, it used to be very low density. It used to be just me, but now I have um, neighboring beekeepers, some some small uh, scale, and then unfortunately um, someone who did a whole bunch of uh, packages. And I, I, I'm well anyway. Uh, let me not get into my tale of woe. But anyway, so um, they don't have to deal with a lot of agricultural or even landscape chemicals. I'm sure that helps them in their resilience, because both of those things are just, um, you know, at best, 
just a toll. It just goes into their margin of error and it makes them more vulnerable um, to other things. Even if the chemicals themselves are not at a level that will kill bees, it makes them more vulnerable because their bodies have to process those chemicals just like ours do in our, in our liver. And I, <laughs> I'm blanking out on uh, what organ bees do the liver process with. And one of my master beekeepers will remind me next time I see them. So the other thing that I have had some effect on that I believe has made a real difference, and that is good genetics between caught wild swarms in wild areas. That's how, how I started with my original line. And then particularly in recent years, I have uh, paid a lot of attention to essentially collecting genetics, um, collecting queens from breeders who are working specifically on disease resistance. And then also from some breeders who just have some, some unusual lines. And this is where I'm very fond of new river bees out of uh, West Virginia, because he has a Caucasian line from the, uh, I think it's from the Republic of Georgia. And then also he has some old world carniolans. Those are from Sukobi and if you buy virgin queens, they're they're not that expensive, and it's great because they go ahead right away and cross with your bees or you know your area bees, and so that genetic collecting, I believe, the diversity of those genetics has added to the disease resistance and the overall robustness of the bees. Another thing, again, these are not in order. I think there's something to do with the smaller configuration that I use. So I use all eight frame mediums. I used to overwinter in big, kind of big, tall stacks of um, eight frame mediums, but I really condense them now. And I have a author that I'm going to hopefully interview if I can get him back because I he had agreed to early in the year and then I drifted off. Adrian Quiney. I believe is how you say his name. It's with a Q and he has a book called The Cavity Compromise and it's about the size of the hives. And he does some real interesting stuff up in the very cold part of the country. But so, there's something about, I, I noticed years ago when I would basically try to get my late summer nukes that I had raised, the fresh baby queens, I wanted to get them to where they were very full and they were two eight frame medium boxes. And even though the catch with that was I had to really watch their food in the late winter, early spring, but there was something about that size, uh, which happens to be the size of uh, Adrian's um, setup. So he overwinters uh, five over five deep. And so two eight frame mediums is actually the same volume. And it's kind of funny that that that's a lovely volume for the the bigger hives I still try my best to if I can condense them down to three three boxes so the interesting thing about these smaller configurations and then I also do insulation is they get through the winter on shockingly less honey than when I used to try to overwinter the really big hives I think they just don't have to burn enough burn as much honey uh, warming that warming that cavity so I think the size that I tend to run might have helped. Um, and part of that might be that a smaller colony is more like 
a wild colony. It's more toward the size of a natural colony, and it's not the unnatural extra large colonies that we've gotten used to as beekeepers. And when you have that extra large population, you also have a corresponding mite population. So I think the smaller configuration, um, and this is with carniolans, which do go down to a very small cluster anyway in the, uh, in the winter. They're very responsive to what's going on out in the, uh, out in the world. So another thing, I think this is 3B. (laughs) So I don't know how many of these there are. Another thing is I, one of my main beekeeping endeavors in the summer and in the spring and summer is making more bees. Now, part of that is because I do sell some nukes occasionally. I give nukes to people who have really shown some promise in their beekeeping and their dedication, and I want them to have some good genetics to start working with. But it's it's more than, this is the interesting thing to me. It is, it's more than having extra colonies. Now there's something to that because the more colonies you have, your odds are just better of getting enough through the winter that you're happy with it. But there's this other phenomenon that is remarkably similar to pruning trees. So if you've ever learned to prune apples or there's any trees or you know how to pollard a tree that wants to be pollarded, which is not what the power company does, but if you're consciously pollarding trees or you know cutting them back harsh, there's this interesting effect that it has that it keeps that tree young. And so for example, if you let an apple tree just grow, do its own thing, it's reaching its biggest size and then its decline and death will follow um, a very predictable pattern. But the act of pruning, the, the pr- in pruning a tree, it does something to keep them young and to keep them coming back. And they can y- live much longer um, than that tree typically would left to its own devices. And so strangely enough, it's like all the splits that I do, it's like it renews the vigor. And I very consciously split because I want the brood break for the mite control. But there's this other thing, and I don't, I don't know what it is, but there's this renewal. And they they just, I don't know, it, it's like it freshens the, the colony to go through that process. So I think making all those new colonies, besides just having the numbers, there's also some effect of, um, I don't know, of keeping them in a younger stage of development, keeping that colony in a younger stage of development. I think, I think that there's something to that. I wish I could say what. So another factor, and this is a big one, is to be really attentive to health. And I've done this for a long time because as a person who doesn't use chemicals, I know there are lots of people who are just like, oh my gosh, she doesn't use chemicals. So her bees must just be eat up with all kinds of diseases. So I was a little bit paranoid about all that. And I just am really attentive to health of the colony. If I have a sick colony, I cull them pretty quickly. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I kill the colony. Usually it's just a matter if, if I catch it in time, it's just a matter of requeening, which of course changes the genetics over the next couple months. And if I've caught it in time and changed the genetics, then there, that renewal seems to go on. The attentive 
to the health. You know, there was a time when if a, a hive just, you know, it just did a colony just looked kind of puny. They just never, they couldn't get traction. They, and so I went through a little stage where I would try to baby them and get them going. And I'm like, you know, that's not what I want to do. I don't want, I, I don't want that genetic line to continue. And so by, you know, requeening or doing some manner of split, many times I could get rid of whatever problem they were having and get them going again. But as the longer I do this, the faster I am to go, no, let's, uh, let's do something here to act. Now, um, you know, probably there's queens that would have pulled themselves out of the slump that they were in, but I just, now I default to requeening getting that colony robustly healthy as fast as possible. And if they just won't get healthy, then I I will and have cold colonies. Now, as I talk about all this that I do regards to health and making more bees, one of the reasons I can do that is because I don't make my living on honey. You know, if you're if you're making your living on honey or if that's a sideline or important income for you, then you know that's that's really its own space its own specific focus because the things that you do to boost honey production are not always the things I'm describing to select and make more bees with disease resistance, et cetera, et cetera. So those two aims can be counterproductive to each other. And, and you may have to choose, you know, if you really want, if honey, if making the money from honey is important to you and it's a, it can be very important in all of our lives at times, then you're just going to do things different than all this experimenting and babying and experimenting and playing and leaving all the honey on because I'm too tired to take it off and that way I won't have to feed or anything. But if you are a honey producer, you don't have that luxury to just do what you want out there. And I did make the conscious decision to, you know, work my day job and have the bees as my joy and something that I'm really trying to learn and trying to select for the best bees. And so the luxury of that experimentation. And the other great thing about not paying too much of attention to honey is, you know, when you don't take honey off, it that's just a whole intervention that there's no risk of losing the queen or losing that colony. It decreases robbing. You know, if you don't take the honey off, there's not a bunch of uh, robbing um, incidents. And again, that's just a luxury of that not being my focus. Another thing that I have become, as you know, a big believer in in recent years is winter insulation. And I'm not in that terribly cold of a climate, relatively speaking, to other areas of the country. But what I am in an area is extreme ups and downs. And the extreme ups and downs, even if the up and the down are not, are not that extreme compared to many places, but that going back and forth is hard on the bees. It's a whole stress level. And insulation, I mean, pays off, in my opinion, in spades when that up and down. And as I said earlier, especially in the late winter, spring, when they are raising brood, I think that might be the most important time to have really good insulation on the hives. And by that, I mean primarily heavy top insulation. And and on that subject, I, I do have heavy top insulation and I do not use upper ventilation, which 
you can only do that if you have heavy top insulation. And I've talked about that in other episodes. So another thing that I feel like has been, has made a lot of difference in my success with the bees is winter supplemental feeding. Um, even for hives, well, <laughs> I just don't want, you know, one hive to feel left out. So I will often put a winter patty or a sugar brick on a hive that's heavy. Um, and because it's right over the center, then if they get in that situation where there's honey on each side and not honey in the middle, which is more of a problem with the uh, 10, 10 frame hives than, than eight frame. But, um, that, way to lose your bees of starving, even though they've got good weight, is pretty much eliminated with always having some kind of supplemental feed on there for the winter. It's most of the time with the big hives, it's for the beekeeper, not the bees. But with the little hives, it is a matter of of life and death. And those, again, are not sickly hives, small sickly hives. These are just young hives that were raised late in the summer. Another thing that I believe has made a difference is, um, and I kind of talked about this earlier, but right sizing the boxes to the population of bees. Um, A lot of times people will just try to have the hives kind of turn out the same size for the winter, or if it's a tiny population in a big hive, they won't take off those um, bottom empty boxes and keeping them cozy. Again, it goes back to that smaller cavity, um, which is just easier for them to take care of themselves, easy for them to stay warm in there. And that has, has been a, a big deal, but also um, in making splits, you know, I, I go to a lot of extra trouble when I split, I often go to a smaller box, a nuke box or a eight frame medium box that has a uh, divider frame in it. Something I keep them really cozy and I very gradually expand their space. And of course, you know, that's, um, a fine balance because sometimes they, uh, get out of hand, (laughs) but, but, Basically, I've just seen such good results with keeping the space, not that much extra space in both growing a hive and overwintering a hive. One thing that I feel like has made a huge difference in the bee success is experience. And if you don't have it, the only way to get it is to, is to get it. So it's not like you can beat yourself up for not having it because if you're new, that's just part of the process. You're right where you need to be. But I would really encourage you to take your experience very seriously. Um, I'm not talking about in a non-fun way, but treat your learning of beekeeping, treat your, your skill, your art, your craft of beekeeping, treat it with some respect and really learn the whys of, of what you're doing. And there, there is no downside to that practice of paying attention to what you're doing, pushing yourself to learn new skills, not getting into just a rote recipe that you follow every year, no matter what, but staying, staying close to the, the learning, the fresh learning. Um, you do that over a lifetime and you have a treasure of beekeeping knowledge and then your job becomes to share it with others. So experience is just, that makes a huge difference. And, um, when you get it, things will be easier. So another thing I think that has really helped me is experiment. Um, because I have that luxury of doing a lot of experiments, then I've discovered things like everybody told me that in this climate, 
you know, bees don't need insulation. I mean, I've had a Vermont beekeeper literally laugh in my face about inner, about insulating um, my hives. They were like, oh, chuckle, chuckle. Well, whatever, because it works for me and they don't know this microclimate enough to know of the ferocious ups and downs that we have. And so when you experiment, you prove it to yourself and there is, you know, if you've done it and it's successful and you know it's successful, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about your method because the proof is in the pudding. And if you've got live healthy bees coming out every year, then you're winning. And it doesn't matter what anybody says is the way one has to do a thing. If you are successful, you are successful. Doesn't matter what anybody thinks. And actually, you know, the the longer I've been keeping bees, the less I talk about it to other people that are either of um, of management practices that are just really, really, really different than mine. And by that, I mean the people who, you know, just feel like you've got to treat with chemicals on X and such date this many times of year. Um, that's, that's not what I'm doing. And, um, so I just don't get in those arguments. And to me, that saves my energy, but also, you know, it's like, again, it's, it's about rubber meets road. (laughs) And so when I see my live bees with my own eyes, that is all the convincing I need. And so even if every book and every person tells me that's not the right way to do it, if I've done it and it works and it works great for me, then I'm going to keep doing it. And with a few things like the insulation, it's been kind of fun that I noticed a difference when I first started doing it years ago. And then it's really fun to see the articles in the bee magazines and some of the research coming along and going, oh, you know, this makes it the less stressful on the bees. They have to consume less honey, which is less wear and tear, interestingly, um, on their bodies. So it's fun to, to see it, uh, it to, to come around where it's not, you know, complete heresy like it used to be. And then here's some things that, you know, I don't know if they matter, but I suspect they might have an impact. One is that because I am completely chemical free, all the wax in all my colonies is chemical free. I mean, except for what they would pick up in the environment, which is not too terrible out here that I'm aware of. And so all that wax is as close to organic as as you can get. And as we know, just not being exposed, that kind of very low level exposure to environmental chemicals, again, it's just one layer of stress that they don't have to spend. And then they can spend that margin of error on resisting, you know, all the new diseases in the world. Another thing to do with wax is that I am fairly conscientious of I just try, if I pull out a frame and it has that, you know, old black wax, I try to retire it right away if I can. Um, You know, if it has like brood in it, I might move it up above a queen excluder just so, you know, they can emerge. They'll put some honey in it. And yes, I'll, yes, I I do use an open brood nest system and I have that on the list. Um, I don't know how much it helps that I use an open brood nest. And that means I typically, except for occasional, occasionally when I use a queen excluder, basically my bees have the run of their entire hive. Um, they're not, the queen is not blocked into that small portion downstairs, like, um, some, you know, just is, is a, is a common practice. So 
they can be really responsive to if there's like a big nectar flow, then they can grow like mad if they want. And I let them. And because for one thing, it's lots of extra bees to make nukes with, but also it's lots of bees to bring in that nectar and, and have honey either for the bees or for the beekeeper. So keeping the wax cold and I used to try to label the year on the frame, but basically I couldn't keep up with it. And so I just eyeball it. Um, if it, you know, if it's kind of like a dark, well, if it's like a medium caramel color, okay, I'll, I'll use it again. But the moment it hits black, then I begin trying to work it out of the uh, colony. And also with the wallpaper steamer method, um, it's, kind of surprising to me that I can get quite a bit of wax out of, uh, I mean, not nearly as much as like if you melt an actual honeycomb, but there's still quite a bit of wax um, in those black combs. And if you run, if you filter it enough, then it's, it makes nice, it makes nice candles. And then finally, the thing I wrote down is, and I, I don't know how much, uh, if this has anything to do with things going well or not, but that's, I have a mixture of foundation and wild comb. And the, when I say wild comb, it's basically a frame that there was nothing in it. Maybe I just, you know, maybe I twist tied a skewer to the top of the frame, you know, to give them a kind of guide. And then they dropped comb on their, on their own. That does create more drones. And I don't know, you know, maybe that, maybe having more drones than the typical hive that's all foundation, maybe that has something to do with the robustness of, of my bees. I don't know, but, um, I do love the wild comb when it comes time to harvest the wax. It's, it's so easy because I, I, my foundation is plastic foundation. So getting the wax off the plastic foundation is, is not that, not that easy. So that's the bouquet of things that I spent some time thinking, you know, I believe these things probably help in being able to keep bees without chemicals and being able to do it this long with with really good results so far knock on wood I'm always scared <laughs> I'm always scared you know that that I'm going to have a total wipeout but so far so far so good and so maybe it's that time of year when you have a little time off on New Year's Day maybe sit down and write what are what are the things that you feel like are going really well in your bee yard write those down and really soak them up and try to understand what impact they're they're having and then also talk to yourself about the things that are not going so well you know are there are there patterns of trouble you're getting into like me i tend to get too many colonies going and can't give them the care that i would like them to have but then that's kind of tempered with if you the more colonies you have sometimes you have a, you have a deeper margin of error should uh should things go wrong but so maybe take in your bee notebook, you know, take a new year's appraisal of the, of the past year, and then maybe also start thinking about experiments and skills you would like to try out or to try to work toward mastery of in this upcoming bee season. So at the end of 2023, I want to tell you, no matter what happened to your yard and your bees this bee year, don't give up. No matter what happens this winter, don't give up. If you've been doing this a few years, you are already in deeper than the average beginner. 
it's it's a sad thing. They they come and go so fast. <laughs> they come and go so fast because they do it a couple years and like, dang, this is hard. It's hard to keep bees alive. And then they don't want to put the time into learning all these skills um, that make a difference and all the skills that you need to make it way easier to keep bees alive. So if you've got a few years in, you have made it further than most beginner beekeepers. So don't give up, even if it's been hard. You have got the basics of skills that after a few years of actively keeping bees, you've got this whole set of skills that beginners kill a lot of bees for not for not having. You know how to handle frames. You know how to identify a queen. You know how to look at a healthy um, healthy brood. You know how to know if they have enough food. And if you have some of these skills, again, don't underestimate what a treasure that is. And that is your foundation. And now that you have some of those, now every year you can try more trick riding <laughs> and you can get a little more advanced and you can try new things and then you, you can experiment. And that's, man, that is where it takes off and gets really, really fun. I mean, beekeeping is a lot of work. I mean, that's why I don't make money through honey, because frankly, I, it's, <laughs> it's easier for me to go to my day job and do that work than to try to make that same amount of, uh, of dough with honey, even if I could. So it's hard work. And I really respect the people who try that. But at the same time, I feel like we need a whole battalion of people who are not dependent on their beekeeping for any part of making a living. Because it's, it's those folks that are not, that's not their job, um, to make a living with their bees that who can really, um, who can really do things, who can take time to teach young beekeepers, who can take time to experiment or, or try new things and learn new things. And so if you're in that situation, don't give up no matter what happens. Okay. All right. I hope you have a wonderful week. I will talk to you again in 2024. I will close out with a heartfelt appreciation for the patrons. It's patreon.com slash fiveapple, F-I-V-E-A-P-P-L-E. I would love to have you there. Keeps the show on the air. It keeps me coming back and it keeps this whole podcast commercial free for everyone. All right. Take care. I am just wishing you the best and have a happy new year.